2: Splash Weather Repel Premium Windshield Wash features a 3-in-1 formula that repels rain, sleet, snow, and bugs while leaving a
0: streak-free shine. It keeps you seeing safely all year long. Pick up some at Walmart today.
2: See safely on the road when you apply a little splash.
1: Hey, everybody, you're tuned to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast, where we talk to authors of music books, bios, histories, and criticism. I'm your host, Steve Jay. Today's guest is Paul Sexton, the author of a new book called Prince, a portrait of the artist in memories and memorabilia. Welcome, Paul.
0: Hi, Steve. Great to be with you.
1: Well, thanks for joining us. Your book is beautiful. My first question, you know, tell us about your vision of this book and how it came to be, because it, it is quite unique.
0: Well, it's nice of you to say that, you know, I mean, that's that's the first challenge, I guess, because obviously there are a lot of Prince books that come out, you know, on a regular basis, even now, five years after his death. So coming up with something a little bit different was, was the first challenge. This actually grew out of a documentary that I made for the BBC, a radio documentary called Prince and Me, which we aired, I put it together and it aired on the first anniversary of his death. It was a two hour program, whereas a lot of the documentaries that I've made for the BBC would be one hour where you're cramming stuff in, you know, and there's never enough time. With a two-hour show, you've got a little bit more of a chance to dive a little more deeply. And the other slightly unusual thing, I suppose, was that rather than fill the programme with celebrity fans, the idea really was to fill it with people that I was able to reach, who are not particularly household names, unless you're a Prince fan, of which there are millions, of course, but people that really did know him and work with him over a long period of time. And that then became uh, another challenge in terms of winning their trust, you know, as I think any any journalist will say, especially the, f- the further up you go and the heart, the, the bigger the name, you're going to have to do put some work in, often for years in advance, you know, to win those people over, because they are naturally and very understandably wary of people like me. And all the more so in the case of someone like Prince, because, you know, it, it's, since some of these uh, great, highly talented musicians and uh, engineers and everybody else are not necessarily as well known, I'm sure they often have the feeling that we only care about them because they happen to, to know the guy in question, you know. So um there's that to overcome. Fortunately, uh, you know, having been a journalist all my life and done done it for so long, there were one or two cases where I had interviewed these people before. So that had, you know, at least opened the door, I think, to the possibility of them being involved. And really from that point on, having spent a, a long time getting those interviews, and not a huge number, I mean, there are probably half a dozen core interviews in the book from very important people to it. and then uh, you know uh, quite a few others who contributed to a lesser extent we put the program together i presented and produced it for uh, for the bbc uh, it seemed to go down well and as i keep saying you never know who's listening mm. because uh, it turned out that uh, a guy from Welbeck publishing heard the show and i think uh, started thinking about it as a a possible book so we started to discuss it we agreed on on the plan and we augmented it with you know a lot of new updated material of course so that's really what happened it's a a book that started out as a radio show
1: that's awesome well you know you mentioned two of the foundational reasons that i think this book is so good and why it's different from others so uh let's take them not necessarily in order but you know, I, I always think, and I worked for a company that has a sister company based in Minneapolis when Prince first came through. So I always think of him more of an American artist. But I think over the years, yeah. he, he became more of an international artist, really. But you write that Prince's early releases were, quote, inexplicably specialist. And it was a while before the UK audiences truly saw Prince. So why was that? And what was the first Prince release that really took hold over there?
0: Well, if you go back to the beginning of his career, and I, I think I identified him you know so much, not just because of loving the music, but uh, you know I started writing about music almost exactly the same time that he signed his first record deal with Warner Brothers in 1977. Um, and it's very hard to imagine this now, but you know it, the UK was pretty backward when it came to media, and you know we've been very, I mean, listen, you know we were decades after you in getting colour television for a start, you know, and we've we've been kind of slow. And in those days, if you're talking about that era of his very early releases that just weren't the outlets for it really you know we ha- we only had three national television networks bbc1 bbc2 and itv and in terms of other media you know w- ways that you might find out about him pretty much the same sort of deal on the radio you had national bbc radio one and radio two the commercial radio network was only really sort of expanding at that point point. and as far as tv shows i mean we had top of the pops which is our famous chart show on television very much a chart show so then you have that chicken and egg thing where if the record is not a hit then it doesn't get on that show and that's one of the reasons that it couldn't be a hit we had the old grey whistle test which is our famous fairly let's say more rock oriented television institution by that time but they, they weren't quite ready for someone like prince yet at that point so i think that had a lot to do with it those early singles and albums they had a following and i remember distinctly hearing them and being very aware of them, but they were not chart items. You know, if you look at his discography or his chart record in the early years in the UK, it, it's almost non-existent. It's probably even like his first dozen or 15 singles that came out in the States. Only one of them made the UK charts at all. Uh, and that was I Want to Be Your Lover. And even that didn't make the top 40, you know. So we're pretty slow. And the same, same for the early albums. And strange as it is to think of this now, because he became so huge it's years really before you get to the point where he's having automatic hits and the, and the one that really opened the door for that was 1999 but only even then as a reissue you know Warner's were trying very hard with him by the early 80s i think they even released that single twice within the space of a few months and uh, it didn't really take off in a big way on either occasion so it's not until you're into almost the sort of the you know the purple rain era that he begins to be Really, on the same sort of scale in the UK and internationally as he as he was in the states.
1: Is it fair to say then, with your talk about the media, was it was it mostly word of mouth? I mean, what was his fan base like?
0: It's a good question. I mean, uh, yes, by that time he certainly had good coverage in. The, I suppose you'd still say the specialist media in the UK. My starting point was one of the weekly uh, music papers uh, in the UK called Record Mirror, which was very much sort of pop and soul oriented title. And I sort of came through writing for them when I was still at school. So I was kind of like the, the soul boy, you know, who wrote a lot of that sort of stuff. And we talked about the disco era, of course, as well. And this is at the point where dance music was not fashionable in the way that it became much later on. So that's how I got a lot of my early work, I think, because I was interested in this stuff, you know, and uh, would volunteer to, to write about it. And then you had titles like um, Blues and Soul magazine and Black Echoes and so on, who would have been giving Prince a lot of coverage at that point. So he had that base and he did come over to start playing in, in the UK at uh, smaller shows. But yeah, beyond that, yes, I guess a lot of word of mouth.
1: It's so interesting because clearly there are a lot of Prince fans in the UK and yeah. nothing bears that out more than the 21 Nights residency in 2007. Mm-hmm. Tell us about that because that, that's amazing.
0: Yeah, I mean, you look back and think it's just an astounding achievement. I hope we sort of get into the detail of that a little bit in the book through the voices of a couple of people who were very closely involved. And they both talk about their early meetings with Prince when he came over to discuss the possibility of playing 21 nights at the O2 Arena.
1: Which was a huge venue, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely massive. Yeah, I mean, this is, you know, we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in in total and was pretty sceptical about it and said, you know, eventually he said, okay, you know, we'll do it your way, but on, on the understanding that... It's quite possible that the last few of those dates just won't sell, and you're probably going to end up doing in some club (laughs) or something like the, you know, like the jazz cafe in in London or one of those sort of venues. So there was definitely some skepticism about it, but of course he was right. You know, it was, I mean, the the level of interest was astonishing. It's very interesting from a media point of view, too, because clearly he was living here at that time. You know, he was residing in the UK. One of the, the reasons that it was so successful, that run of shows, was that he knew exactly how to work the media through his publicist in the UK. The tabloid, press would be getting a daily feed really of of stories about him just keeping him in the in the public eye and reminding people about these shows that were coming up and then you know even right the way once he started doing them that was the case as well he was so smart at managing the media and knowing what to do and i love the idea that you may remember that he had an album coming out at that time called Thirty One Twenty One, even down to the detail of pitching the ticket price at 31 pounds 21 pence it's just clever stuff
1: I remember, I think it was an earlier album, but didn't he give one away in the London newspaper? Yeah, he
0: did, that's right. This is the other thing from that period. Pretty controversial, but then, you know, this is somebody who was never shy of taking a stand about certain things, as as of course he did earlier on in the, in the symbol era, you know, the, the war, you have to call it that with uh, with his record company. He really was the first to introduce the idea that live music was going to be the future, that that would become the commodity, that the album, the recording would not. We all got a little bit more used to that, that idea later on. But at the time, it was incredibly controversial, you know, and, and quite unpopular with a lot of people. And of course, it played into what was happening in terms of the evolution of the, of the digital world of music. And it did take a long time for us all to collectively get past that point. You know, I think it, there was a generation of people who, partly for that reason, and also just the uncontrolled levels of piracy, basically, that were going on, that music was suddenly for free. But at least in Prince's case, he had a strong argument to back it up, which was that, you know, the recorded music was to be kind of bundled in with the live performance. Brave thinking, I must say, revolutionary, really.
1: And kind of happenstance nowadays. But to that end, and I'm sure it kept his name in the papers, too. But, uh, you know, this 21 Day Run, he also Mm. plays late night after shows and then he plays fan shows.
0: Yeah. Did you see any of those shows? Actually, you know, to my great uh, regret, I, I have to tell you that I didn't, and I, I, I'm not quite sure why. I mean, I certainly saw him in some unusual situations. It's amazing to think back on the, the fact that he was doing this, and it's not even unique to the London visit, just the length of time that he spent on stage. I mean, on, on a day where he was playing live, it's not an exaggeration to say that he would have been performing in total for maybe six hours in a, in a day, because the other part, which is less well-known, of course, is that he would be doing the sound check for the show you know most people will get in and out and do that as, as quickly as they can his sound checks were like other people's shows in in, in some cases you know so that's quite a big deal in in itself in, in the afternoon i guess of the of the day and he's doing the show itself for three hours and then he's doing probably the same again at one of these after shows well the dates themselves of course are pretty legendary but the after shows even more so and i do have some stories in the book from people who um play them you know and actually were part of that
1: he had some special guests, but even even more compelling are some of those set lists, which are crazy. You call them a fantasy yeah. jukebox. And he was not afraid to pluck a song from any era, any band, and just play it live.
0: No, that's right. It's a reflection of his amazingly eclectic taste and his awareness of all kinds of music. And this is something that goes right the way back to his childhood. There are stories in the book from some of the people involved. You know, he'd be listening as a kid to, yes, a lot of funk and soul and R&B music, but then he'd be listening to... Santana Jimi Hendrix and Blood, Sweat and Tears and bands like that you know as he begins to learn more about music and it sort of mirrors itself in in the set list a lot of which I'm sure was very spontaneous I mean this is the, one of the things about him having huge expectations of his band they had to know a lot of stuff not just this immense catalogue of his own that, that they that had built up by that time you know anything and everything but then you see you look at set lists from various shows of his where there's just crazy stuff that crops up probably only a little reference there's one set list of his from the 90s where he suddenly goes into a few calls from how much is that doggy in the window. I mean, it is just insane.
1: <laughs> he only had one outdoor festival. Is that correct? And and his um, set list from there was outrageous.
0: Yeah. So the, the, the only festival that he ever did in the UK was the Hop Farm Festival, which is, you know, was well known and well respected and had, had some big names at it, but not really one of the nothing on the scale of a of a Glastonbury. And I have a little chapter in the book about how he came to do that uh, festival, which was in uh, 2011, from a friend of mine. At a certain point, after many months of hopeful <laughs> inquiries, he suddenly became available. Wanted to play in the UK, and they got him ahead of Glastonbury and all of the others. So suddenly, here he was going to be making his way over to uh, to the Hot Farm Festival in Kent, uh, which, for anybody that knows the UK, is, is was quite near the town of Tunbridge Wells. Not exactly a rock and roll capital. Mm-hmm. Yet. So, <laughs> But at that point, the tickets for that uh, festival had already gone on sale quite some time before. And it had gone on sale as a two-day event. So they actually created an entire new day for him, a third day of the festival, which, of course, requires a great deal of extra work, not just logistics of a third day, but building a bill around him as well. And then much nearer to the date itself, in came the um, contractual requests, you know, the rider, as we would call it. And and some of these requests did not reach the festival organisers until literally the day before. When they got word that he would be requiring a purple throne uh, as part of his backstage uh, setup. And Jill tells it hilariously and says, You know, where am I going to get a purple throne at sort of less than 24 hours' notice in Kent? You know, she remembered that um, a friend of hers uh, ran a club, a lap dancing club, let's be frank, not too far away from, from where the festival was taking place. She calls the guy and says, um, can you help me out? And he says, yeah, I can, but it won't, it won't be purple. It'll be red. So they made the arrangements and they got it there in time and they got it backstage and all was well.
1: <laughs> I wonder if you knew where it came from. I'm sure you did.
0: Uh, yeah, she says to me that uh, she, she didn't like to think about what had been happening. <laughs> and so yeah, they just managed to keep that secret.
1: Well, through all of this, Prince's work ethic is legendary. And it's fair to say that, you either kept up or you were gone. And yeah. But if you did keep up, he was very loyal. And there's a number mm-hmm. of people in the story, both musicians and producers, and they play an integral part. A lot of them are women. Susan Rogers, who wrote the wonderful forward in your book. That's a beautiful piece of work there. Yeah. And she's one. Susanna Melvin and Wendy and Lisa are others. Tell us about these women and what they meant to Prince.
0: Well, yes, and you're right. There are some very important people, and and a lot of them were women. I mean, to take Susan first, she's somebody that I'd had the chance to to interview on a number of occasions, actually, over the years. And she is just wonderful, almost more than anybody else. And certainly in the the period of Prince's career that a lot of people would think of as, as the heyday. She was there as the engineer on those records between 1983 and 1987. And she's there not just in the studio all the time, all the hours that he required. She certainly doesn't like to be called his confidant but she was really his right hand woman you know in, in all of those situations and helping to to create these fantastic records. you know she's very passionate about the fact that they work together and very proud of it but she's also able to sort of take a slightly longer view about uh, about Prince and, and his um, plus points and minus points. She's perfectly happy to talk about him. You know, he's incredibly gracious in our interviews. And then I said to her, you know, after the, the, having completed the, the book itself, I said, I wonder if you would consider writing the foreword. And she was absolutely delighted to do it. And I'm glad you enjoyed it because I think it's it, it's different from what she contributes to the book itself in that it's, um, I mean, in a way, it's even more personal. She sets the scene of what happened on the night after Prince died, which obviously is a very extremely sad scenario. But she just talks about the fact that she and... Quite a few of the people who knew him best gathered together at a location in, in Minneapolis just to swap stories about him, you know, not for broadcast or for filming or anything, really. Just uh, because, of course, at that point, they're all in shock, you know. I mean, nobody... It, it's just a terrible shock to, to everybody that he that he went when he did. Susanna Melbourne. Uh, also absolutely invaluable to to the book and and someone that, uh, again, I I had met before because she was a member of the band The Family, who were actually the first band signed to Paisley Park uh, in the mid-'80s. They only made one album, so they came and went quite quickly, but they did the original version of Nothing Compares to You, which, of course, we all came to know extremely well a few years later by Sinead O'Connor. Their version, and I will say that it is my my favourite, it's the version I prefer. It's quite different to Sinead's interpretation so she's around from that period and she gets to be very close to prince both on a professional and personal basis and they were engaged to be married at one point but she had been listening to him for years before that and Susanna is the sister of Wendy Melvoin who went on to be the Wendy of Wendy and Lisa you know who were obviously members of the revolution and then made some wonderful records of their own Susanna is around later as a later member of the revolution and and goes on to co-write with Prince. But she does talk about those early days when she and her sister were listening to radio, nighttime radio in, uh, I think, in New Hampshire somewhere. And uh, as often would happen come the evening, radio sessions would drift across from from wherever. And I think it was a, a, an r and station in Boston that they heard playing, and this must have been around 1978 because it was his then current single, I Want to Be Your Lover. And they just completely flipped out and said, who is this fantastic female singer? Oh. Even then, there's that sort of slight androgyny to his sound, I suppose.
1: You know, you mentioned the introduction, and it is full of sad stories. But I want to remark how it sets up the rest of the story so beautifully. Because of that, it's a it's a weird way to open it. In a way, mm. it's also a way where Susan Rogers is able to point out a side of Prince that we don't ever see, which is the Purple Penguin story. <laughs> is <laughs> it possible you can tell that quickly?
0: That's one of those "How long have you got?" kind of things. Yeah. And I've been saying to people actually, there's not so much. it's not so much a yeah, so Shaggy Dog story as a Shaggy Penguin story. Mm. But it does demonstrate life on the road with Prince. And the fact that, I mean, people have been saying to me, what did I find out about him? And some of this I knew, but, you know, you, I think you do get a feeling or a sense of the fact that he was quite a fun-loving person. For all of his demands that he he's put on himself and other people and the incredibly high standards that he set, there was also a great sense of fun. As Susan Rogers actually describes it quite often as a sort of an adolescent sense of humour, actually, which is sort of applies to this. But clearly they were Egging each other on. Let me see the short version, shorter version of the story would be that this is when they were on the um, on the road in the tour bus. They had this uh, kind of tradition. Somebody had given, I must have been a fan who had uh, given them this pretty much life size stuffed penguin. So this thing gets on the bus and goes on the road with them. (laughs) What develops is this kind of competition between them all in is really to see who can stay awake the longest. And this is in itself a reflection of the fact that he just kept the most ridiculous hours and and apparently never slept, you know. The contest that grew up was, you know, who could stay awake the longest. And every time somebody was caught out and found to be sleeping on the bus, they would be photographed with this penguin next to them as evidence, you know, like a, a Polaroid photograph of the fact that they are no longer in this game because they've fallen asleep. So this goes on for a while. And eventually the only two people left are Prince and Susan Rogers. You know, it appears that he can't be beaten. But there is a point where she find she manages to stay awake as long as he does. And they're sitting on the bus one day and she actually looks over and he, and he has his eyes closed. So she gets the camera, <laughs> she gets the penguin <laughs> and she puts it in position and she's just raising the camera up to her face to take the picture. And he opens one eye and says, what do you think you're going to do with that? so
1: and and that's a big part of his story but a bigger part you mentioned it earlier is paisley park and so he builds this in chenhausen and it becomes you know a home a fortress a recording studio whatever you want to call it Mm. pretty amazing place now you can do the tours and virtual tours even and but you mentioned a story about the publicist and i do remember that one because the architecture was so interesting and this was a glass room
0: yeah, that's right. I mean, very futuristic looking building and fascinating. It's interesting, sort of psychologically, that he wanted to build this. Uh, not exactly a fortress, but certainly a you know a, a, ho- a home from home. Uh, and it's also significant, I think, that he does that close to home. I mean, this is in, as you say, in Chanhassen, in, in Minnesota, literally down the road from Minneapolis, a city with which he had something of a love-hate relationship. You know, I mean, he, in his early days as a, as a um, aspiring musician, I think like a lot of people, he can't wait to get out of there. But actually, it, you know, he retained his links to to Minneapolis for his entire life, much as he did live in Los Angeles for uh, for some time. And as we've said, in London, he builds this headquarters really you know which he can live in he can record in it had a twelve and a half thousand square foot sound stage in it so you know they can rehearse in it they can they can pretty much do everything at a certain point Alan Edwards who I mentioned earlier is invited over there to Well, I don't think it was ever explained to me exactly what would happen, but clearly this, you know, he he would make the quite reasonable assumption that this was with a view to them working together. And he goes over there, he is met at the airport, he gets driven to the Paisley Park. They sit him down and fairly quickly, they start playing him the upcoming album, which at that time in the early 90s was Diamonds and Pearls. And all the time he's sitting there, he's sort of aware that he's probably being observed from somewhere. It's almost something out of a spy movie or something like this. So he's kind of making the right moves and, you know, sort of nodding when he thinks he should nod. And obviously it's a great record. So that helps a lot. And then he kind of waits for something to happen. And it doesn't really, you know, he's he's not even offered a drink or anything like that. He's just basically sat there to listen to this album. And then it finishes. And um, before too long, somebody says to him, it's time to go now, you know, to go get the car, to to go away. And basically he gets out of there and goes home and flies back to to the UK without ever having met Prince at all. And he thinks, quite sure what all that was about. Anyway, two or three days later, sure enough, he gets the uh, the call inviting him to be Prince's UK publicist. So clearly the whole thing was very much very stage managed and uh, he was indeed being observed. And he obviously reacted in, in the right way and did, all, did the right thing. That was his first non-meeting with Prince.
1: I'm sure it was a test for sure, because that seems yeah. to pop up a lot. We mentioned earlier the sound checks and things like that. You know, you definitely had to pass the test. You're listening to All Music Books Deep Dive, part of All Music Podcasts and Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Paul Sexton. He's the author of a new book on Prince called Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. So your book is filled with all these wonderful personal stories from a lot of people close to Prince. That in itself is is quite an accomplishment because, you know, it's almost like the mafia in Omerta, you know. You just don't really talk about Prince if you're close to him. And there's so many great stories. But as a visual person, I have to say, your book is also filled with some remarkable pictures and, and some memorabilia. And I know you say you put the call out through the BBC radio show for some interviews. How did you solicit this visual material?
0: In a, in a way, that's an easy answer, Steve, because I can deflect all of the credit for that to, to other people. You know, it's, it, once we committed to doing the book, you know, you have the luxury of working with a picture editor and uh, which we, I, I you know, was very involved in the early conversations a lot, uh, along these lines. But you need somebody who knows clearly who knows what they're doing. And in, in this case, it was somebody who, you know, who really knew where to look for this stuff. So, you know, he had a very long list. And then new to go to the right places, which in several cases, as you'll see from the credits at the very back, actually, um, would be auction houses. Now, you know, that's where a lot of this material ends up. And I think that's true of all major artists. I mean, you often you'll see, you know, Eric Clapton's guitar from 30 years ago suddenly becoming you know, available and, and going into a new auction. Uh, so these things were passed in and out of the hands of, of private collectors. And that is true of quite a lot of the, uh, you know, the stage costumes and the guitars and so on that we um, we have. Photographs of in in the book. I do like the fact that we have a I think a nice mixture of artifacts, you know, from Prince's life, even down to his Bible, you know, from when he became a Seventh Day Adventist. Letters that he wrote to a, a fellow musicians or staff, and and so on. Then we have things like you know early real to real sets, um, set lists, you know, a whole whole bunch of, of material. So um, that's been fun for me because you know it's a little bit like when you write a, a newspaper or a magazine article, which I've been doing you know for many decades. You never fully know the impression that it might make on people because you're not in control of the visuals, basically. You know, and, and there've been times where that's turned out great, and there've been other times <laughs> where it hasn't. You know, and now a lot of stuff that I would write would only ever be online, of course. But you know, there are still times where it would be for a print newspaper, and I've written for all of the, the UK nationals over over the years. But sometimes you would sort of in the in the newspaper days, and especially the broadsheet newspaper days, we still call them the broadsheets, even though they're not anymore but you would sort of open it through your fingers a little bit because you weren't entirely sure of what photo they'd chosen or the the headline that they'd used. Readers tend to think that the journalist does all of that, and usually we don't. So you're at the mercy of good editors and sub-editors sometimes with good results and sometimes not so much. But I'm really very delighted with the way that they've um, they've made the book look, you know, and, and the cover too. I think the, the, the cover image uh, I do like uh, is a, a later picture of Prince, but not one that I think people will necessarily have seen all that much. And, you know, the other thing I quite like about the cover is that it doesn't have any purple on it.
1: <laughs> oh, they avoid it? No,
0: not at all. No, but it, I just love the fact that they've avoided the visual cliche. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, it is an astounding presentation because, you know, there's stuff like that chain mask that he wore. Yes, yes. Boots, which I don't even think would fit my daughter, that have the, the logo on it. They're tiny. And and then, you know, just the photographs of live and in the studio, you could probably track the decade he's in mm. due to the hairstyles and, and particularly the clothes. I mean, you know, style was incredibly important to him. And, yeah. and you write in there that, that he had a whole, you know, cast of characters that created that stuff for him.
0: Yeah, that's right. As with any other major artist, it takes a while before that persona, that stage and recording persona fully develops. You know, I mean, that's true if you look at whether it's Rod Stewart or Elton John or, or Stones. I mean, you know, you look back to the to the Stones early days with a lead singer called Mike Jagger. You know, you can't quite believe that now, but that's what he was told to start with, you know. So that's certainly true with Prince. And yes, when you see the, the costumes and the, you know, all the, the clothes laid out, in the pages yeah. of the book, you know, they do look pretty outrageous, don't they? And uh, he was not scared of being, you know, of taking chances from a fashion point of view. And yeah, that chainmail cap, where of course we should point out that the chainmails down the front,
1: right, <laughs> the right.
0: front of his face, is outrageous. And then some of the guitars as well, you know, look look pretty cool too, don't they? So yes, I think there was certainly a team of people that were, um, you know, helping him to make those decisions. And he's a man of a thousand hairstyles too, isn't he? And, Definitely. Uh, the whole look is uh, ever-changing.
1: Yeah. I, I think he bears sole responsibility, though, for the dirty mind look with the black fuzzy underwear and the fishnet stockings. I'm glad that <laughs> he, he kind of got a little bit outside of that. But um, yeah, I think so. that was perfectly representative of that record which is a brilliant record you mentioned this just a moment ago and one of the things i was struck by is just how beautiful prince's handwriting is i mean it's amazing mm. like these notes that he wrote to people and then you look at them and sometimes they're a little hard to read but there's just yeah. gorgeous. his handwriting is un- unbelievable
0: it is yeah and there's you know you you see him also communicating in different ways with different people There's a memo in the book from, which I think is written on hotel uh, note paper, actually, just uh, from a hotel that I guess he was really on tour in in Portugal at the time. And that is, you know, that's the opposite of what you just described because it's a very, it's a block writing, probably written in in a real hurry to somebody on the Paisley Park staff, telling them in no uncertain terms that unauthorized photographs are to be taken down from the website immediately. That's the boss. (laughs) <laughs> you know telling the telling the staff what he thinks but you go from that to one or two other lessons and one i'm sure you're thinking of which is a, really one of my favorite things about the whole book is the letter that he wrote to suzanne vega the singer-songwriter I mean, she was pretty new and breaking through with the song luca which um it's not a uh, insignificant that that's a song about a you know a, a child in a in a a broken relationship, which, you know, was very much true of Prince himself as he, as he grew up, as he was sort of, you know, his parents split and he was being moved from pillar to post in many different addresses in, in Minneapolis. And it's just a one-page letter, beautifully written, handwritten, in which he just says, Dearest Suzanne, I want to thank you for for Luca, which is the most, you know, beautiful song I've heard in, in years. And he, he actually says, and I don't think they knew each other at all at that point. Thank God for you, is, is what he says. Suzanne did not publicize that at the time. Most people only became aware of it when Prince died because she remembered that she'd had this letter for all those, you know, by that time, what is that, 20, 25 years later or something? By the time she talks about it, it you know, it, it's kind of fading and, and yellowing. So you're right, it is a little hard to read, but it's very sweet. And I think my favorite thing about that is it, 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 it's one of the things that underlines way above and beyond all of the hoopla and the, and the showbiz and the, you know, the image and the mystique around him. First and foremost, Prince was a music fan, and he wanted to communicate that to a fellow musician. We didn't even know about it at the time, you know, and uh, I think that's that's an important part of his makeup.
1: And he reached out to Joni Mitchell, too, and he was a huge fan of hers as well. Mm-hmm.
0: Right? Yeah, that's right. She went on to say that, that he was her favorite among all the people that she knew she'd influenced. And he went on to record a version, and it was on a, a Joni a tribute album, a version of A Case of You. And she actually did show up at one of his shows once, as uh, as, you know, from uh, one of the captions that's in in the book. She joined the revolution on stage at a certain point. So this is the pulling power of this guy. I I can't really think of any other major artist who who reached across all of these genres and styles. You wouldn't think of Joni Mitchell as being anything like Prince musically. But because he had this amazingly open-minded attitude to music, there is an early interview with him in the days when he was still doing interviews (laughs) where somebody asks him, What he wants to achieve with his music and his whole raison d'être almost is bringing people together and cutting across all of these genres and divides that we all, media included, you know, put on things and just to bring people together, you know, whatever their creed, color, sexuality, whatever it may be, you know, you have to say I think he achieved that more than just about anybody.
1: That's perfect, and uh, I, I can't even add to that. I mean, I agree on so many levels about how he grew as an artist and then you know, grew this circle, but mm. you know, the things like you talk about giving away the music and, you know, live performances now are pretty much the way they make money. Some of those things with the slave written on the cheek, but they're a little shocking mm. at times, but, but he believed in what he did and, and carried it all the way through.
0: Yes, that's right. And also, it's a reflection of how prolific it was, you know, that that whole dispute with Warner Brothers, and the whole slave era, as it became really, started because he simply wanted to be releasing records on a more regular basis than they did. It's something I've come across in in other artists who, if they had their own way, would probably be releasing two or three albums a year, you know, and that's just not the way that major labels are set up. Certainly then, I mean, it's changed a little bit now, and you do have slightly more of a kind of guerrilla marketing approach to to music, I suppose, in the digital era and people are able to put out records quickly and often almost as a surprise now. You know, that does happen. They don't, have to well it depends on the deal they've got of course but you know in many cases they're not necessarily obliged to be putting out a full album you know so you'll see individual tracks appearing from people which is i think is great is the way, it, the way it should be but it's still important that there's a place for the the regular album i think people still want to have that as a focus i i certainly do you know call me old-fashioned but i like the idea of a set of songs and i think he did too it's just that he wanted to put them out very regularly that's where that dispute started really and ended up with him regarding himself as a as a, a slave. It's one of those things where you can see both sides of that argument, because he certainly wasn't shy in using or making the most of the, uh, you know, the marketing muscle that, that Warner's had that helped to make him a huge star in the first place. And you could argue that when it suited him, he, he decided that that wasn't the way he wanted to work anymore. So it's a double-edged sword, but still a very brave and career-risking thing to do, really.
1: Definitely. Let me wrap it up with this. Prince has quite the uh, recorded archive and there are pictures of that and it's unbelievable. And as much music Mm -hmm. as he put out, there's probably five times, maybe more in that archive. Now that the family has control of that, I believe, what are your thoughts? I know there's one album that just came out, I believe. Yeah. But what is the status of Prince's output now?
0: Well, you're right. The, I mean, it's I mean, I don't think anyone's put a put a number or, or you know, you hear you hear stories about 8000 hours of unreleased material and so on. If you look at the, the sort of posthumous discography, there's been a there's been quite a flow of, of material, some of it in the form of um, the expanded versions of the classic albums, you know, Sign of the Times and, and others. And then in the case, as you say, of the recent release of the Welcome to America album, that's particularly fascinating, I think, because it, it was intended to be an album that would have been released in that form pretty much 10 years ago. That was his plan. So I think it's very strong because it's not a question of the state pulling together a record from different sources. This is something that actually wasn't, you know, it's the way that it was intended to sound. So it's very coherent and a powerful statement, by the way, on the world of social media that he saw sort of becoming ever more powerful. Uh, so it's quite an indictment, actually, on the, the way that he saw the world then and and actually the way that it's gone on to be since his death. There will be many more, of course, you know, and you're quite right. If you look at the fact that his output when he was alive was 39 albums, and that's pretty remarkable, you know, over the course of his, his lifetime, I suppose. Uh, what are we talking about? You know, rather less than 40-year, 35-year recording career or something. All you can really do is hope that um, the powers that be manage that in the right way. I think there are those who would say that you know the, what, what he released in the last few years of his life was sometimes a question of quantity over quality Not the, I don't think ever made a bad record but there are some that are you know less essential than others as is in the case of many artists so this is, of course is going to happen more and more you know uh, <laughs> in the next 10 20 years I think we're going to we're going to start to find this happening sadly an awful lot you know where people's output it becomes almost as productive in, 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 in death as it was in life. You just want the standard to remain as high as it possibly can, really.
1: Exactly. And, you know, Prince is an icon. His music is iconic. This has been Paul Sexton. His book is Prince, A Portrait of the Artist in Memories and Memorabilia. And as I said before, it's really interesting because it's not necessarily a biography, but there's a lot of deep information in there. But it also contrasts with a visual kind of picture. It's really a great book, and I congratulate you, and thank you for being on.
0: Thank you, Steve. It's been great talking
1: to you. If you'd like to find out more about his book, please visit allmusicbooks.com and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive episodes there. I'd like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. Finally, a big shout out to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout this podcast. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all the major streaming services. Please support your local and independent musicians and writers. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, and all-music books podcast.